Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 225 being recorded on Friday, June 26, 2020. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, the stars have aligned up, um, and we have kind of the pandemic to thank for this. It's one of those silver linings. Uh, and you and I have uh, long admired a couple of academics, and we had uh, Dan on the show last time, and then we have another academic here um, that comes from the world of marketing and persuasion. So uh, uh, I want to hear his bio from his words, but we're excited to welcome Wharton Professor Jonah Berger to the show. Welcome, Dr. Berger. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, we we are thrilled to have you. I'm I'm a big fan. Um, before we jump in, uh, do you mind maybe giving uh, our listeners like your brief background and also like uh, we're going to talk about your latest book, Catalyst, but if you could also touch on your previous works, that would be awesome. Oh, sure. So uh, in my day job, I'm a marketing professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. I have been there for about uh, 13 years. Uh, do a lot of research on social influence, uh, change, uh, word of mouth, and why products, ideas, and behaviors catch on. Um, a few years ago, I wrote a book called Contagious, uh, Why Things Catch On, which changed my life a little bit. Uh, at the core, I'm an academic, so I love research and teaching. Uh, but that book came out. Um, it's now out in uh, over a half million copies in 35 languages which is around the world. Uh, and it gave me the opportunity to work with a lot of companies and organizations. So uh, I learned a lot more about marketing than I ever had, um, getting a chance to work with everything from big Fortune 500s like the Googles and the Nikes and the Apples of the world to small startups and, and everything in between. Um, and I've really enjoyed learning about how both marketing works at different organizations, but, but how business works at, at different places. And um, every industry is obviously different, but there's a lot of interesting commonalities uh, between different organizations. And, and that's that's part of what drove me to, to write the newest book. That uh, is awesome. And um, uh, Scott alluded to, but uh, in our last episode, we had Dan McCarthy on, who's a, a warden alum. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I know Dan quite well. Yeah. Uh, so this is a, a fun series for us. I'm used to being the second smartest guy on the show, and it's now annoying that I'm like, I'm, I'm falling further down the list. Um, the, uh, and so one other thing before we jump in that I think is important for Scott and all our listeners to know, you've been a Jeopardy question. I have. Been. Uh, I had nothing to do with it, but uh, I got a random text one night going, do you watch Jeopardy? And I said, of course not. Uh, why? Um, uh, no, I, I, I have watched Jeopardy, but I'm not an average Jeopardy watcher. Um, and they said, you're on Jeopardy. And I said, what do you mean? Uh, and so, yes, I have been uh, a question on Jeopardy. It was very nice of them to include me. Um, uh, and I don't know why they picked me, but it was very, very nice of them. <laughs> it's one of those random things we start getting all these texts and it's kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one other Wharton question, there seems to be just like a big nexus of activity in e-commerce innovation there. I, I don't know if that is coming out of the, the MBA program or your side, or you, you all kind of work on it together. So like Dollar Shave Club and um, Bonobos, aren't, aren't a lot of those um, kind of digitally native vertical brands, didn't they have origins in Wharton? 
Yes, yeah. So I actually uh, had the Warby Parker guys in my class yeah, um, a number of years ago as they were building, and they're nice enough to come and uh, speak in my uh, my current MBA class every year and sort of tell students what it's like to sort of grow a company from from start to finish. But uh, yeah, definitely a lot of interesting stuff in that space going on. Also, a lot of interesting work going on in kind of natural language processing and taking unstructured data, text data, language data, whether collected online or off, and sort of using it to extract behavioral insight. Do you guys have a track in the MBA program all these folks are going through or just kind of ended up being a cohort that was just kind of awesomely successful? You know, I think it's a little bit more of the latter. Um, there's certainly more interest in these topics and more kind of research um, and discussion about these topics. And I think if one person does it, other people look and go, oh, that's an interesting path. Let me let me check that out and apply it to a different sort of domain. And so um, you see a lot of social influence at work, even within the students and, and within career choice. Got it. Cool. Let's let's jump into um, to the book. So uh, I've tried to use the pandemic to add some new skills. Um, I got introduced to the ideas of persuasion through uh, the Dilbert guy, Scott Adams. I'm, I don't know if you've read any of his stuff, um, but I found that nicely digestible. Uh, and then uh, then he kind of points you to Cialdini, if I'm saying that right. Um, yes, Cialdini. Yes. Yeah. That was like a little too academic for me. Uh, and then I found your stuff sits kind of nicely in the middle there. Um, so, you know, for for folks that are kind of new to this idea of persuasion, um, maybe give us a, an idea of where is the science on this. And um, that's a good segue into probably why you wrote the book, but you know what, you know, uh, a lot of people feel like it's kind of mumbo jumbo, the kind of persuasion thing, but it, it seems like there's some really good kind of, you know, science behind this now. Yeah, I mean, people have been doing research on persuasion for decades. Um, so I don't want to say 100 years, but we're probably close uh, to 100 years of empirical work on persuasion. Obviously, many uh, work, uh, philosophy work before that. But, you know, lots of great research coming out of whether it's psychology or sociology or um, other related domains, business school domains, looking at um, how do we change minds? How do we change behavior? How do we drive action? Um, you know, sometimes it may seem like random or luck. Um, you know, many of us may think uh, you have to be really persuasive person. It's about individual differences and being charismatic. Um, you know, some of that certainly helps, but a lot of it's just about tools. Uh, a lot of it's, you know, if you have, if you know the right tools and approaches and ways uh, of generating change, any, anybody can do it. Um, and so, um, you know, that's what I and others really try to um, spread the word about is, you know, you don't have to be, I'm not the most persuasive communicator. Um, I don't give the best speeches, uh, you know, in my own life, it's not like everyone listens to me all the time, but um, I think if we understand why people change and when people change and also when people don't change um, and the science of persuasion and, and change, we can be much more effective change agents. Yeah, it's, it's been a, I, I, I kind of started working on it really more because I'm, I'm an engineer and it's always been hard for me to be a good salesperson. So, so I was kind of trying to use it for that, but I found it like super useful for pitching and then a lot of internal stuff too. So, so getting more people on board with what you're trying to do. So using some of the tools there. And the other thing that blows my mind is, so, so I kind of went through a cycle of disbelief around persuasion and then now I'm a believer. And then there's persuasion where you can actually prime people to better receive your message, which is kind of, I'm kind of in the, the mind blown <laughs> adoption of that now too. It's pretty oh, well. very neat. Good to hear. Yeah. And then um, the other thing before we dive into specifics at a high level is I think it's really interesting how social networks in many ways are these little persuasion engines that, you know, they, they measure your, they have analytics with clicks and what you react to and how you react to it. Um, do you have a point of view on social, you know, kind of like the Facebook thing? Like, are those 
good for society or are they have they kind of gone over to the side of evil? Like a lot of people are coming out of Facebook and saying, you know, we purposely build these things to be addictive and give you a little dopamine hit, you know, kind of, and then accelerate that cycle. Have you ever thought about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think what's challenging is that tools are tools uh, and those tools can be used for good or bad, right? So you can use a hammer to build a house. You can use a hammer to hurt someone. Um, you can use persuasion, the science of persuasion to get people to eat healthier um, and save the environment. And you can use them to get people to buy things they don't need. Um, the tools are the same. It's, it's how we use those tools. Uh, and so, you know, I certainly think Facebook and other um, online technologies uh, connect people and speed the flow of information, which can be great in many ways. Um, these tools can also speed uh, the spread of disinformation and make people dissatisfied and, and unhappy. Um, and so, you know, uh, part of the challenge with today's day and age and, and data is, you know, anyone that has access to individual level data is trying to make their products better more engaging, right? Each of us would prefer to go to a website and have that website show content that's more relevant to us rather than less relevant, right? You know, um, none of us want to go online and see articles we're not interested in. We want to see articles we're interested in. The problem with that, though, is that creates an incentive for these sites and platforms to design content that's more engaging based on the stuff we like, which does make it more addictive. Um, and so I think, um, you know, there are both upsides and downsides. And it's, um, Unless regulation is going to come in and regulate these spaces, it's really up to us as individual consumers to say, well, what do I want to get out of these platforms and what don't I want to get out and how can I uh, take advantage of the upsides and avoid the downsides? Uh, that's awesome. And I want our listeners to learn how to do that. Um, but before we jump into it, uh, one, one set of context that I think is super interesting. Most of our listeners are like uh, e-commerce operators, digital shopper marketers, and uh, they they hear you in there. I guarantee you they're immediately going to, uh, oh, man, there's stuff I could learn here to persuade my customers to act in the way I want, like, um, you know, buy more stuff or or not cancel or um, uh, make make purchase decisions that are beneficial um, to them. And uh, I, there, there's a lot of stuff we could talk about there. Uh, to me, what's interesting is is these days I spend a lot more time with clients um, helping them affect internal changes that they want to change. They're the digital team and they're trying to convince the CEO to uh, to lean into digital more or break down silos or or you know affect all these organizational changes that are really difficult changes for people to to accept. And so you know, frankly, when I read Catalyst, I read it primarily through the lens of, oh man, there's a lot of practical um, advice for me in, uh, in helping coaching clients to affect the, the organizational changes that they see. Yeah, this is actually a perfect segue to I think what you guys were were talking about going to next. But you know, this is the same thing I, I sort of realized, right? So, um, you know, I, I, after Contagious came out, I got a chance to work with all these different organizations, uh, and I kind of saw that everyone had some version uh, of the same goal. You know, they all had something that they wanted to change. Sure, that the marketers wanted to change consumer behavior. And um, you know, sales folks want to change clients' minds, but you know, leaders want to transform organizations. Employees want to change their boss's mind. Um, you know, um, uh, parts of the organization want to get other parts buy-in. Parents want to change their children's behavior. Startups want to change industries. Nonprofits want to change the world. We all have something that we're trying to change, whether that's external, uh, internal, even in, in our personal lives. 
but often change is really hard. You know, often we push and we pressure and we cajole and we add more reasons and facts and figures um, and nothing happens. Um, and so the question I started to wonder is, you know, could there be a, a better way? Um, and after diving into literature and conducting new studies and, you know, engaging in interviews with hundreds of professionals, you know, everyone from top selling salespeople to transformational leaders, um, you know, I'm happy to report that there is a better way. Uh, and it just requires that we think about change a, a little bit differently than we've been thinking about it. Uh, I, I love that. I mean, and can't you, we affect change by just yelling louder for people to change? <laughs> you know, I, I, we, we laugh. I laughed when you said that. I think everyone listening to that goes, ah, oh, that's ridiculous. Yeah, that's what we all do all the time. Right. So, you know, I did some survey work at, at the outset of this project um, and sort of asking people, you know, write something down that you want to change or that you've wanted to change and then list the ways that you've tried to get people to change. And over 98% of the time, it's some version of basically yelling. It's, let me provide more reasons. Let me provide more facts. Let me provide more figures. Let me make another PowerPoint deck. Let me make another sales call. Let me just convince you that this is good. If you just had this piece of information, you'd come around. Um, and pushing, as I'll call it, uh, really isn't working. Um, you know, uh, I think a good way to think about it is, you know, you see a chair in the middle of a room uh, and you want to move that chair. Pushing is a great way to get that chair to move. Right? If you push on one side of the chair, the chair will go direction you want to go. And, and so we use that same intuition when we apply it to people. You've got a person, you want that person to go in a certain way, you think pushing that person is the right way to go. Um, but the problem is that people are not chairs. Right? When you push chairs, chairs go. When you push people, they push back. And so pushing just isn't going to cut it. Yeah, the... Uh... The brutal uh, example that made it totally real for me in my own life is, you know, at work, I like to think I'm a nuanced guy and, and somewhat persuasive and have all these these uh, um, robust interactions with folks. But I'm now the dad of a four and a half year old. And, <laughs> Congratulations. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But man, you go tribal really quick. Right. And, you know, he's he's not doing what you want. And, you, you know, your your like guttural instinct is just to like tell him to do it. Um, and it turns out that does not work at all with a four-year-old. Yeah, I actually uh, have an almost three-year-old and I, I feel very much the same way that uh, you do. You know, uh, I think um, uh, pushing, pushing often doesn't work. And so, um, you know, I think what's been interesting uh, about sort of looking at this space and so, you know, if pushing doesn't work, kind of what does? And so I've spent the last few years diving into the research, interviewing all these folks. And what was neat to me is, you know, you talk about being a parent and indeed I actually talked to not only business professionals, but um, people from other industries you see a lot of the same things coming up in different places. So actually some of the techniques top selling salespeople were using was actually the same thing parenting experts tell you to do with your kids. It's just called different things. Uh, you know, I interviewed hostage negotiators and substance abuse counselors. Um, the type of approaches they use are the same things that some transformational leaders were doing. The underlying science was the same, but they weren't necessarily calling it the same thing or thinking about it the same way. And so what I think was really neat about this book is, is seeing the same stuff again and again. You know, to me, what I kept seeing is, pushing doesn't work. We need to take a different approach. And that approach basically comes from chemistry. Um, you know, in chemistry, change takes forever. Right? It takes forever to turn carbon into diamonds. It takes forever to turn plant matter into oil. Uh, and so chemists often increase the temperature and the pressure. Squeeze things harder, increase the temperature, it forces them to change. Um, but there's a special set of substances that chemists often use that essentially makes change easier, makes it faster, makes it better. Um, and they don't use temperature and pressure. They actually use a different approach. Um, and that approach is to lower the barriers to change. 
These substances don't you know, force people to do something or force the material together. They essentially reduce the amount of energy by figuring out what the obstacles are and, and mitigating them. These substances do everything from clean, you know, the grime on our contact lenses to clean our car's engine. People have won dozens of Nobel Prizes for research in this space. Uh, and these substances are called catalysts. Um, and what's really neat uh, about the idea of catalysts, you know, we think about catalysts in the social world as just people that create change, as change agents. But catalysts have a very specific approach. Really good catalysts don't push harder. They go, why hasn't this person changed already? And what is preventing them? Rather than pushing, think about what are the barriers to change, what are the things getting in the way, and how to mitigate those, those barriers. And you know, across, across my research, I found again and again that the same five things kept coming up. Um, and so I, I put them in the book, you know, and we'll talk maybe about a couple today, but um, uh, the first is reactance, the second is endowment, the third is distance, the fourth is uncertainty, and the fifth is corroborating evidence. And each of these are an obstacle that tends to get in the way, whether we're trying to change minds or drive action. Uh, you put all five of them together, they spelled the word reduce, <laughs> um, and is exactly what great catalysts do, right? Gate catalysts don't push harder, they don't provide more facts, more reasons, they don't just yell louder. What great catalysts do is they find the barriers, they find the obstacles, and they reduce them. And for Pretty listeners cool. at home uh, that can't, can't uh, visualize the framework, it's it's because Jonah cheated. He 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 used two letters for collaborating evidence. So that <laughs> corroborating evidence does have two letters. It's two words, but I agree with you. It is a, a small cheat, if we'll call it that. Exactly to make a good mnemonic. Mnemonic. Wow, I can't say that. <laughs> <laughs> you need a mnemonic for mnemonic. Uh, the so so let's dig into one. Um, let's talk about the first barrier, which is reactance. Yeah, um, and so. I think to talk about reactants, I'll just use a story if it's okay. It'll take a couple minutes, but I think it illustrates the point nicely. Um, and this is a story about a product, actually, that many of your listeners are probably quite familiar with. Uh, and that is those things that we throw in the laundry called Tide Pods. Uh, and so many of you probably use Tide Pods, um, but you probably don't know the story behind them. Uh, and, and that is that a few years ago, uh, Tide was trying to figure out how to make laundry doing faster and easier. Um, and they wanted to come up with something which wouldn't get your hands sticky and would already be pre-measured and it could release different sort of chemicals into the laundry at different times. Uh, they came up with these things called Tide Pods. They're essentially little packets you chuck in the laundry. Um, they're wonderful. They help uh, do laundry uh, and make it much better. They spent hundreds of millions of dollars in marketing, uh, thought they could take a big chunk of the billion-dollar laundry market. Uh, so they released Tide Pods. Tide Pods do okay, uh, but then there's a problem. And that problem, very simply, is that people are eating them. Uh, and I want to pause there for a second because some of your listeners are probably going, no, no, I must have misheard him. Like, I thought he said, eat them. There's no way people would be eating these chemicals. No, you didn't mishear me. People are eating chemicals. So there was a funny video on College Humor, a satirical article on The Onion. Suddenly, uh, young people are challenging each other online to eat Tide Pods. It's called the Tide Pod Challenge. Uh, and so imagine you're a Tide executive, a uh, Procter & Gamble executive, uh, when this is happening. You're sitting there going, what are we supposed to do? People are eating detergent. Um, you know, this is ridiculous. Uh, we've got to do something. So they do what most organizations will do. They come out with announcements saying, don't eat Tide Pods, right? They're bad to eat. Don't eat them. And in case that's not enough, they hire a celebrity, uh, Rob Grog Gronkowski, uh, to uh, go on social media, shoot a short video telling everybody not to eat Tide Pods. They think this will be enough. They think that telling people not to do it will be enough, uh, and that's exactly when all hell breaks loose. So uh, search interest in Tide Pods goes up over 400%. Visits to poison control go up as well. More people come to, into poison control with sort of Tide Pod-related injuries than have come in in the next two weeks and the, the prior two years. Essentially, a warning becomes a recommendation. 
telling people not to do something makes them more likely to do it. And I know most of your listeners will probably be never faced with this exact situation, uh, but it's an example of a much broader phenomenon, and that is reactance, right? When pushed, people don't just go along, they push back. It's not just that when you tell people not to do something, it makes them more likely to do it. Even when you encourage people to do something, it makes them less likely to do it. Um, And the reason at the core is that people have an ingrained anti-persuasion radar essentially almost like a spidey sense or an anti-missile defense system. And anytime someone tries to persuade them, that system goes off, right? People want to feel like they have freedom and autonomy over their choices. Why did I buy a product? Why did I use a service? I did it because I wanted to do it. I'm in the driver's seat. I made the choice because I like it. I have freedom and control over my life. But as soon as someone else tries to influence them, whether that person is a boss, whether that person is a colleague, whether that person is a marketer through an ad or other means, Now they feel that reactance because it's not clear whether I like something because I like it or I'm interested in something because someone else told me I should do it. And if someone else is telling me I should do it, well, then I'm less interested in doing it in the first place. The the anti-persuasion radar goes up. I avoid the message. I ignore it. Or even worse, I counter-argue. I think about all the reasons why what someone is suggesting is wrong. Right? And so all of that makes it really hard to persuade people. And so um, you know, reactance is clear. Hopefully that explains the science of reactance. But um, then you know, if useful, I'm happy to talk about a couple ways to reduce it. Because I think the key insight is that selling is not going to work. Yelling is not going to work. Right? We can't sell people. We have to get them to buy in. We can't persuade people. We've got to get them to persuade themselves by giving them back some of that freedom and autonomy and guiding choices rather than forcing them. Can we just tell people not to buy our products? <laughs> that's a, that's, I, will, I will write that down on the list. I'll put that one in the next book. You, you guys joke, but there, there is a, a, a very well-regarded brand, Patagonia, and their, their most successful campaign every year is at holiday. They, they run a, a giant ad called Do Not Buy This Jacket. Yeah. And it's, it, it, it works fabulously for them. Yeah. Not sure it's totally repeatable, but yeah. Um, so if that doesn't work, like how do we use um, that to how do we use our awareness of reactants um, to, to more effectively persuade people? Yeah, so, so I think there are a couple ways. Um, and so the, the first I'll call kind of providing a menu. I talk about four in the book. Maybe I'll mention maybe two briefly here. Um, but, but one is what I call providing a menu. Um, and the, the intuition there is very simple. Uh, whether you're presenting to a client, whether you're trying to pitch a boss or a colleague in a meeting, um, we're often trying to convince people to do something. Um, and the problem with doing that is they're not just sitting there listening. Their anti-persuasion radar goes off. They know we're trying to convince them. And so they spend the whole meeting or the whole pitch thinking about all the reasons why what we suggest won't work. Sure, marketer, you say your product or service is great, but why wouldn't you say it's great? It's yours, right? You're going to tell us about all the reasons why we should buy it, but that's probably not right. Sure, colleague, you think we should start this new initiative or spend more money on digital, but you're in the digital department. Of course you would think that, right? Um, where that, where's that money going to come from? How do we know that digital is going to grow and is the future of our business? You know, How are we going to reposition employees? Who are we going to hire? It's almost like a high school debate team member. They spend the whole meeting poking holes in what you're saying, leading your argument to crumble. Uh, And so what great catalysts, good change agents do is they don't just give people one option. They give them multiple. They don't just give them one potential direction, one potential product, one potential service. They give them a few. And what doing that does is it shifts the role of the listener. Rather than sitting there and thinking about all the reasons why they don't like what you've suggested, now they've got a different job. Now they're sitting there going, huh, which of these do I like better? 
And because they're thinking about which one they like better, they're much more likely to pick one at the end of that meeting or at the end of that pitch because they focused on the upsides in some sense rather than a downsides. And I call that providing a menu because notice what you're doing. You're not giving people infinite choices. You're not giving them 100 or 200. You're giving them a small, limited choice set, but you're choosing that choice set. You're choosing a small set of options that you're pretty happy about them picking from, and you're letting them choose from within them. You're giving them choice. You're giving them freedom and autonomy um, within a larger, a larger option set. In some sense, you're guiding their choice. You're not forcing them to pick one thing or something else, but you're guiding the direction uh, that they go. And you see the same thing in our personal lives also, right? You know, uh, Often uh, someone asks us what we want to do one evening or something. We give them an answer, and they think about all the reasons why they think that's a terrible idea. If we give them two options... Now they're going, okay, interesting. Which of those do I like better? And they're much more likely to pick one of the ones we suggested in the first place. And so providing a menu is a great way to encourage people to move in that direction, not because we forced them to, but because we gave them choice. That I love that. That makes total uh, sense. And if you think about it, like we see lots of examples where, where good, good salespeople are sort of selling a, a, a set of options versus a single option. Um, like intentionally or unintentionally to, to leverage that. Uh, I, I want to move on to some of the other barriers, but before I do, I, I have an inappropriate question I've been uh, dying to ask. Um, with the example of, uh, of of the Tide Pods, like fresh in your mind, uh, were you tempted to pick up the phone and call Clorox when you know they were very recently like uh, stressed with uh, creating an ad telling people not to drink bleach? <laughs> you know, what, what's been... Um both funny and in some ways sad uh, about the recent sort of COVID and coronavirus situation. There are many things that are challenging about it, but is the approach that sort of the government and health organizations have used because they've essentially used the same approach that they've used for decades. Uh, and it's the same approach that doesn't always work. And that approach is just to tell people what to do. Right? So if it's a good thing, tell people to do more of it. If it's a bad thing, tell people to do less of it. Um, you know, uh, Just like people used to say, uh, hey, eat your vegetables and exercise. Now it's wear a mask. Just like we used to tell people, don't drink and drive and um, you know, don't do drugs. Now it's don't go to the store, stay home. And the challenge with these things is even if we might be willing to wear masks to start, if an organization or a group is telling us to do it, now we're going, well, okay, I don't want to just do what you're saying. Maybe to exert my freedom and autonomy. I'll just do what I want um, and not do it, right? To go against what, what you're saying. And so I actually wrote a piece probably now two months ago in the Harvard Business Review, sort of about how to apply some of um, uh, these ideas of reactance to the current situation, um, because I think they're very, very pertinent, right? I mean, um, uh, you know, take a, a slightly uh, related um, example or sort of a, a case of these things, not necessarily giving people choice, um, but another example I talk about in the book is. Um, essentially highlighting a gap, right? Pointing out a gap between people's attitudes and actions. And so it's the same thing, not telling them what to do, but really encouraging them to do something by pointing out that what they're doing, what they might recommend for someone else is different. And so, you know, take it to a, a COVID situation. Someone was saying, oh, you know, um, I have a colleague in the office who isn't wearing a mask um, and I want them to wear a mask, but, you know, if I tell them to, they're not going to. And well, rather than telling them to wear that mask, why don't you say something like, hey, uh, if your elderly grandparent or your son or daughter, your young son or daughter, your elderly parent, if they were walking around the office, would you want them to wear a mask? Would you want us to wear a mask? The person would say, yeah, of course I'd want them to wear a mask. Yeah, I'd want you to wear a mask. I want them to be safe. Okay, but then why aren't you wearing a mask? Right? Because what that very subtly does, I'm not telling them, hey, wear a mask. I'm asking a set of questions that highlight a gap 
between their attitudes and their actions. And people want those two things to be in line, right? If, if we say we care about the environment, we should recycle. If we say, um, uh, you know, uh, we, um, uh, you know, are interested in digital marketing, we should do things that are consistent uh, with that. But when our attitudes and our actions uh, don't line up, we do work, we resolve that cognitive dissonance by sort of forcing them together. We have to change our attitudes, we have to change our actions. And so if I would recommend that other people would wear a mask, if I would recommend my grandparents or parents wear a mask, well, then how can I walk around not wearing a mask? And so by highlighting that gap, you can really encourage people to do something, not again, not by forcing them to, but by encouraging them to resolve the dissonance between their attitudes and actions. Yeah, I, I like to, uh, based, based on reading your book, uh, when I'm talking to folks, I like to say, uh, hey, I have a friend who's a doctor and a lot of his patients are getting infections. Do you have any suggestions on what we could recommend oh, for that I doctor? Love that. <laughs> I love that. Uh, yeah, and that's great, so. right? Because again, you're asking someone for advice. You're asking, not telling them. Yeah, uh, yeah. and it, it, it's there's great examples in the book on that, on like uh, helping uh, people stop smoking, for example, in Thailand and stuff. But yeah. um, one of the things that is, that's interesting to me about uh, uh, the reactance barrier, and then I'll, I'll move on, but uh, is it, it feels like it can be very bifurcating, right? Like, because you you have this other concept in the book, uh, you call it like the zone of acceptance, right? Which is part of the, the distance barrier. If you were someone that was predisposed to wear a mask and this you know need to start wearing masks comes out, like you just wear a mask and you end up on, on one side of the, the thing. But if you were someone that was less predisposed, it felt like a bigger change to you. It was less acceptable to you to wear a mask. The fact that people are telling you to, to wear a mask just pushed you further away from wearing a mask. And so we end up in this weird bifurcation that I think we're seeing play out in the real world like right now where people are making incredibly irrational arguments for not wearing a mask because they've become so, so entrenched, like because that zone of acceptance was unacceptable for them. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're pointing out is that different people are not doing it for different reasons, right? There's a set of people that would have done it, but now they won't because you're telling them. And there's a set of people that um, might have done it, but your ask is too far away, and so they're not doing it. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I think in, in both of those cases, we need to be a little bit smarter about the way we're trying to change others. Yeah. I, I want to pivot to one of the other barriers uh, that you call endowment. Um, and the, 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 there's this well-known cognitive bias, the endowment effect. And um uh, I and many other marketers have been using a version of it for a long time, and it's different than the the version that you bring up in Catalyst. Um, like traditionally, like we think of the endowment effective is if I can get the customer to imagine they own this product, it will be more difficult for them to make a decision not to own it. So in in retail stores, the real tangible example is let's take all the fun products out of product jail, out of the glass cases. And let customers handle the products and try the products in the store. So the the digital cameras or the mobile phones or the the GPS units. Like if if you can actually use that in the store, now the decision you're making is, am I going to? I'm imagining I own it. Um, so I I what, uh, I have to make a decision to uh, uh, lose ownership by walking out of the store without it. Um, and and so I feel like that that's been a really useful tactic. But then in the uh, the the book you bring up the point that that same endowment effect can be a barrier to people uh, affecting the change they want to make or that you want them. Yeah. So first of all, I love that example um, as as a way to sort of encourage people to imagine they own something and, and thus want to use it. I think the challenge um, of change um, is it's not just getting people to do something; it's getting people to let go of what they used to do. 
right? So, so the challenge of change is, is not just, hey, I've got to get people to buy a new phone, but I've got to get them to give up their old phone instead. The challenge of selling a service is not just, hey, I get to get them to buy the service because they're using no service, but often they're already using a service. How do I get them to switch to my service? And that's really where the endowment becomes challenging, right? Because we all have that status quo bias. We're all attached to the things we're doing already. Um, uh, and so, you know, the service I'm using already or the phone I'm using already, that thing is valued more than the new thing because I already have that thing. Um, I tell a funny example in the book of sort of my own phone buying journey where I had this sort of old iPhone at one point. It was like an iPhone 4, I think it was, or something like that. Um, and it was basically broken. I could barely use it anymore. Um, but I didn't want to get a new iPhone yet because I wanted an iPhone that was the same size. I basically wanted exactly my phone, just not with more space and not all the broken features. Um, and so I kept waiting and waiting and waiting, hoping this would happen because I was attached to the old thing. And, and change really has a couple pieces, right? One, it's uncertainty about the new thing. And maybe we'll talk about that in a couple minutes, right? It's new things are risky. We're neophobic. You know, how do I know that new thing's actually going to be good? Um, but we're also attached to the old things. We're also attached to the products and services and ideas and stuff that we're already doing. And it's very hard to get people to let go of those things. That's why, you know, we hold on within organizations, we hold on to existing projects that we're already funding and doing, but we don't start new ones. That's why consumers buy the same product again and again and again. Uh, and don't buy new things uh, as often. They buy the same version of old things, but they don't buy uh, new products and services often because it's easy to stick with the things you know. We're attached to those things. Uh, we value those things more. Uh, research shows that objects are valued more if we own them than when we don't. Um, uh, you know, research shows the longer you've lived in a home, the more value you think it is even above and beyond market price. And so it's really challenging to get people to let go of old stuff. Uh, and so we have to figure out ways to ease endowment um, in some sense by making them less attached to the old thing than they might be otherwise. Yeah. And uh, you brought up the fourth barrier, uh, uncertainty. Tell us about that one. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, I think the good way to think about uncertainty is um, anytime there's something new, we don't know whether it's going to work. Uh, the marketer says the product is good or the service is good. Um, you know, the colleague says the initiative will work and it will be better than what we're doing before. Uh, but we don't actually know that. In some sense, there's some uncertainty. Uh, and, and lots of research shows that whenever we feel uncertainty, we hit the pause button. Right, and we can see this going on right now with uh, with COVID and everything else. You know, many companies are sort of waiting until things resolve themselves to figure out what to do. And what's really interesting is, you know, many of these organizations, if they actually wrote down the decision tree and there were two paths, let's say A and B, um, if A happens, they'd probably do one thing, and if B happens, they might actually do the same exact thing. And and lots of research shows that even when path A and path B, the outcome, what you do, are the same. If you're not sure which way it's going to go yet, whether you're going to go down the first path or the second path, even though you do the same thing, you still want to wait to figure out what's going to happen, right? Because we don't know, and that makes us feel uh, un uncomfortable. And so the challenge there is, is how do we get people to unpause? How do we get them to avoid just saying, well, I've never used this thing before. I don't know if it's any good. I'm not necessarily going to do it. You know, there's always switching costs. If I'm buying a new phone, it's the cost of the phone in terms of money. If I'm using a new service, it's the cost of integrating it with my existing system and the time and the effort uh, to do it. Um, but it's not just that there's a cost. It's that the cost is that now and the benefits are later. To, to use a product or service, I have to pay you this money, engage the time, do all this work now to maybe get this benefit later. Right? Maybe the new phone will make my life better, but I don't know, and I'm not going to be able to figure it out until I've already paid those upfront costs. And even worse, the costs are certain and the benefits are uncertain. 
Sure, marketer, the product or service you're selling, you're saying it's going to be better, but I've got to pay you for it first. Then I've got to wait a little while until I see whether it's actually better. And so why would I pay upfront costs for uncertain benefits? And so a lot of uh, what I talk about in the book is, you know, to solve that barrier, to reduce uncertainty, we have to make it easier for people to try things. Uh, and I think that many of your listeners are probably familiar with the freemium business model, right? Um, uh, this model of giving away something for free and then encouraging people to upgrade to a premium version. So take what, you know, a Dropbox or a New York Times or a Pandora or a Evernote, Skype, LinkedIn, all of these companies use the freemium model where there's a free version, you can upgrade to a premium version. Uh, and it's clear why people like customers, consumers like this model, right? They don't have to pay for the product or service. It's great for them, but it's also great for those companies. Because what freemium does is it lowers the barrier to trial. Before you'd have to pay that upfront monetary cost, now you don't. And so it's easier for you to experience the value of the offering. Not because the marketer said it was good, because you experienced it yourself. Right now that that gate has been lowered, I'm much more likely to hop over it, check out what you're offering. Uh, and because I realize it's good, be willing to upgrade to the, the premium version. And so freemium is a great way um, to lower the barrier to trial, but it's not the only way. It's actually an example of a much, much broader principle and a much older principle. You know, if you think about test drives for cars, for example, there's no freemium there. Right? There's no free version of car and a premium version. A test drive is basically just says, hey, check out the car for free. And if you like it, well, then pay us some money. Um, but it works on the same principle. If you drove to a car dealership and they said, oh, you're interested in the car, pay us $30,000 and then we'll let you check it out. No one would buy a new car. But that's essentially what we do all the time with new products and services. We say, hey, trust us, it's really good, right? Well, no one's going to check that out. And so what test drives do, what samples at the grocery store do is they lower the barrier to trial. It's not freemium, but they make it less work, less costly for people to experience the value of that offering. And once they've experienced it, they'll be much more likely to, to buy it, right? More likely to try means, means more likely to buy. Yeah. And our like some of the tactics we see real commonly in, in e-commerce, like the the guarantees, the, the Zappos, you know, uh, free returns or the, the Casper trial or the Warby Parker will send you five glasses and let you pick one. Like, are all those, those all feel like tactics that are designed to help address this uncertainty? Yeah, and I think it's important, and I do some work in this in, in the book to sort of separate some of these different in terms of how they're working, right? So even just compare the front end and the back end, right? So what a money back guarantee does, it doesn't change the upfront cost. You still have to pay the money. You still have to get the mattress into your home, all those other things. But it says if you don't like it, you can give it back. And so that's going to maybe encourage people to do the thing on the front end because they have more certainty that they don't like it, they can give it back. Other things work on the front end, right? Um, you know, Think about why Casper started opening up stores, for example. I bet one reason Casper opened up stores is, yeah, money-back guarantee encourages people to order the mattress. But you've still got to get a mattress to your house, get it up the floor, put it on your bed, move the old mattress. It's a lot of work. And people are sitting there going, man, if I don't like it, it's not going to be trivial to get rid of it. Yes, I can get my money back, but it's not trivial. And so I'm still not willing to take the plunge. The upfront cost is high. And so what a store does, it allows you to sit on the mattress before you buy it, just, just like a test drive. And so you can think about things on the front end as sort of lowering the barrier to trial, making it easier to get in. And you can think on the back end as sort of making it reversible, making it easier if you don't like it to give it back. You know, free shipping's on the front end, makes it easier to get to you. Free returns is on the back end, making it easier to give it back uh, if you don't necessarily like it. Um, and there are even some other examples that I talk about that are slightly different, less than front end and back end, more about sort of driving discovery. 
Because I think the challenge with trial is trial works really well if people know you exist and they think they like you, but they're not sure what you're offering is great. Right? They already moved far enough down the funnel that they've said, oh, what you're offering is pretty good. And if you make it a little bit easier, I'll, I'll do it. Right? I'm, I'm there. But what about all the people that are not that far along in the funnel? Right? What about all the people that aren't even in the funnel because they don't know you exist or the people that are at the beginning of the funnel, but they're not sure they'd actually like what you have to offer right? Uh, or they think they don't like what you have to, to offer? And um, Acura was actually dealing with this a couple of years ago. So car maker Acura, people who drove Acuras loved the brand. Right? They'd go buy another Acura. They were super happy. There just weren't enough people like that. And so Acura was doing test drives, but who takes a test drive? Only the people who know the brand and think that they'd like it. And so they're trying to think, well, how do I get more people to, to test drive the car, essentially experience the car. And so what they did was really clever. They partnered with W Hotels and they said, hey, if you're staying at a W Hotel, you can get a ride anywhere in town in an Acura for free. You don't need to be a car buyer. You don't need to be interested in Acuras per se. You just need to want to ride to the airport or your meeting or whatever it is, uh, and we'll give you one for free. Did everyone who stayed at the hotel take a ride for free? No, but over 100,000 people did, uh, and over 10,000 of them actually ended up buying the car. Tens of thousands of them ended up buying the car. Why? Because they got a whole bunch of people that weren't that far in the funnel, didn't realize Acura existed, might not have been interested in the brand, to sit in the back of the one on the way to their meeting or the airport, learn there was actually a pretty nice car, and then decide that maybe it was worth checking out. And so what that did essentially is it drove discovery, right? It brought the trial to people. And I talk about a lot of other examples like that in the book. Trial's really great, but it still requires work on the customer's part to be aware of you and go take that trial. If you can drive discovery and bring the trial to people, it's going to be even better. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. There's a, a special version of, of trial that's creating a, a challenge in, in retail because of COVID right now. Um, uh, in-store sampling is, of course, super popular. And you think of a, a grocer like Trader Joe's or um, Costco, it's a ingrained part of the shopping experience. But now because of COVID, like, it doesn't seem very um, prudent to have an open tray of food and encourage people to be pulling down their masks and consuming food in the aisle. And so we're all struggling with what's what's the alternative version of of sampling in a, a COVID friendly way. And my hypothesis is that at home trials are going to become the thing that will will put sealed samples of all that food in your bag and let you discover it at home. Have you, have you thought about that at all? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, even think about, um, you know, and it's different than food, but, you know, think about what they do at hotels now, where if you stay at some hotels, um, you know, the mattresses or the furniture is actually provided by mattress or furniture companies um, and allow you to experience it, right? So again, you're not going to the store, they're bringing the experience to you. There are even some cases where they're doing that with clothes, where, you know, if you're interested in certain clothes, you tell a brand the type of things you like, you show up at the hotel and in the closet are some items you can try and they're right there for you. And so again, it's, it's bringing the trial to you. You know, um, think about, uh, you know, you stay at a hotel, they have little bottles of shampoo or toothpaste. And so again, it's all of these are sort of making it easier for people to try stuff. I certainly think that fewer people are going to physical locations at the moment. And so ways to bring trial to people or help with that. Um, and I, I imagine we'll see that in food as well. Um, you know, if for a long time, people can't go to the grocery store as easily and aren't trying things as easily, then sending things home with people is a way for them to, to experience it. I like that. Uh, I want to touch on one other uh, barrier uh, before we run out of time. Uh, and I, I think there are versions that come up a lot in e-commerce in this one. Uh, can you talk a little bit about corroborating evidence? 
Yeah, and I only only have a couple minutes left, so I'll make this one shorter rather than telling a long story. But I think the intuition around corroborating evidence is very simple. Um, you know, if you sell something that's relatively cheap, uh, relatively not risky, um, relatively similar to what people are already doing, uh, a little bit of influence goes a long way. Right? Moving a little bit of barrier is enough to get them to change. If you think about a, a scale or sort of a, a seesaw, uh, and you've got a pebble on one end, uh, if you put something small on the other end, you can move the pebble, right? A little bit of barrier removal will get the pebble to move. Uh, but if you're selling something that's riskier, that's more controversial, it's more unusual, it's more novel, it's more expensive, it's going to take a lot more work to get people to change, right? You've got to move a boulder rather than, rather than a pebble. Um, and in these cases, you really need corroborating evidence, right? People need more proof before they're willing to change their minds. And we often think we'll just provide that proof, right? I'll send more information. I'll send more reasons. Um, and if I just give people more information, they'll change. But the problem if it comes from the same person, it often gets discounted, right? Sure, you say this thing is good, but you're only one person. You only provide so much proof. How do I really know uh, it's good? And that's really where corroborating evidence and, and others come in. There's a, a nice saying where that goes, you know, if, if one person says you have a tail, you laugh. Uh, but if five people say you have a tail, you turn around to take a look. And I think that's exactly the intuition here, right? You know, when multiple people say something, even that one person says, oh, you have a tail, you really have a tail. Let me tell you, you have a tail. You're going to laugh and think they're an idiot, right? They're wrong. This crazy person is wrong. If five people say it, you're pretty sure you don't have a tail. But if five people are saying it, well, then I better go ahead and take a look. And so it's not just about the amount of proof, but about the number of people providing that proof. And that's really where we need to think about involving multiple others, whether they're prior clients or prior users of a product or service, um, uh, providing multiple doses in a short period of time, making sure people hear from multiple others or get multiple sources of information about something. That's where online reviews can be really helpful, right? Where multiple people are saying they like a given product or service for a particular reason. But it's really all about providing corroborating evidence or multiple sources of proof in a small enough time that it provides enough evidence to to tip the scales. Yeah, I, I mean, in that that makes perfect sense. That's uh, I think of all those social proofs, the ratings and reviews, and user generated content, and all that stuff as being sort of the the corroboration corroboration there. Um, we're we're almost out of time. I want to squeak one last uh, question in to to let you close. Whenever we talk uh, with listeners about. Um, the psychology of persuasion and things like that. Like the, the thing that always comes up is what are the ethics of this? Are we like using cognitive biases to trick people into decisions that are bad for them? Is that what this is about? And I know the answer is no, but I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective. You know, um, when the book first came out, uh, almost all the reviews were positive, but there was one negative review. And I was really bummed. I hadn't read it, but I was like, why did this person give the book three stars? You know, I'm sort of disappointed. And I read the review and the review basically said, this book has some great principles in it. But charlatans and hucksters and you know, bad salespeople are going to use these principles to get people to do bad stuff. And first of all, I said, well, if you think that's the problem, that's a great I'll, – I'll take that problem, right? If you think these <laughs> principles are so useful that if people just use them, they can you know, do anything they want, that, I'll take that as a five-star review, even though it's a three-star one. But, but I think in some sense they're, they're right, right? I mean, these are tools. And tools are tools, um, and tools can do good or bad. You know, hammer can hurt people. Hammer can help build good things. And so, I don't think it's that the principles themselves are good or bad. I think it's how we use those principles. And so, I think you know, I can't tell you whether the product or service uh, or idea you're uh, working on is a good or bad one. I know when I work with clients, you know, I keep that in mind. I try to think about is this an organization that I'm proud to work with. Um, but I think more generally, there's a lot of places, people, and things that could use help. Uh, and so, hopefully people will use these tools for, for good. 
Uh, I, I certainly hope so too. And that's going to be a great place to leave it because we have used up all our allotted time. Uh, but Jonah, we uh, super enjoyed the conversation and thank you very much for, for taking the time to tell our listeners about the book. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I uh, hope they enjoy the book. And in case it's useful, uh, there are a bunch of free resources on my website. So just uh, myname.com slash resources. There's a, a guide to changing your boss's mind. There's a guide to changing your colleague's mind, one for um, uh, you know changing a customer or client's mind. And so hopefully people find those useful. Thanks, Jonah. And listeners, if you enjoyed the conversation, hop on into your favorite podcasting app and we'd really appreciate a five-star review. Uh, uh, Thanks again, everyone. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 